RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. The Trek Files, Season 3, Episode 16, Letter from Cole Whiteman, Star Trek Conventions, August 3rd, 1972. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Well, welcome back, Star Trek fans. All you history buffs of Star Trek, yes. And of course, you Trekophiles with an F. We've got one of those fun, um, fun documents this week from the files of Gene Roddenberry, where we're not talking about a, a series per se or an episode or an aspect of Star Trek history from the Hollywood side. Oh, no. Another one of these wonderful letters in Gene's files from the fan side of things. And as usual, what catches my eye is something that oh, we can easily relate to today. Whatever your experience has been in fandom. So go to our Facebook page at The Trek Files. Take a look at this week's documents. Um, it's actually a letter exchange between Gene and a fan. Take a listen to this sample, and I'll be right back with this week's guest. I have been a fan of Star Trek since its debut, and I am all for its return to television, providing it can keep up its quality. But the conventions seem like a lot of hokum. To be sure, I enjoyed the films and the lectures, especially yours and Isaac Asimov's, but the commercial aspect turned me off completely. So, Truckophiles, we have a letter to Gene this week from Cole Whiteman, Staten Island, New York, August 1972. He had just attended the first you know, multi-day Star Trek convention, the first big one, the Star Trek Lives convention, infamously March 72. And he's concerned about what he sees as too much looming commercialism. And you know what? I'm turning to our guest this week, our good friend. You know him as host of Mission Log and Mission Log Live, John Champion, and saying, thank goodness, John, that um, we completely stamped out the specter of commercialism from all fan activity. Yeah, it's all resolved. It's all uh, not-for-profit. Everybody's happy. Nobody uh, complains about being nickel and dimed for anything anymore. Yeah, I'm glad this ended in August of 1972. Gene swooped in, fixed it, and we're done. (laughs) And all the Star Trek on PBS and and NPR ever since. (laughs) Right, yeah. Uh, No no Star Trek tote bags or uh, coffee mugs even, yeah. No, I, I, it's really interesting. Now, just as a historical context, so Al Schuster was one of the original organizers of uh, the, the, what they call the New York Cons, the, the land, you know, the landmark uh, that set so much of a path for what you know I trace right back into today's Comic Cons, the huge ones, um, because it broke out of just the sci-fi literature con mold. But then Al Schuster famously broke off from that group in '75 and did start a even more for-profit ones. The early ones were. Hmm. Really modest. The the actors weren't paid fees. They were all coming in and promoting wow. themselves. Wow. It wasn't until the mid late seventies that people started paying for actors and then that that aspect was off and running. Sure. And the first convention really didn't have what's intriguing me here was what I've read. I wasn't there. <laughs> but I've talked to a lot of people that were and, and read just you know, you can Wikipedia and Memory Alpha and everybody fan lore all have discussions about those earliest New York cons and there weren't uh, the first one wasn't even a big showing of dealers or hucksters as they love to say so Cole Whiteman I mean they did have to pay to get in the door they had had to cover costs they had to pay the hotel and um, 
And he's it, just saying right away, like he, yeah. he went to this one in January, which, as we know, is the first, you know, mm-hmm. really the first. Yes, there was a one-day library event in in New Jersey right before this. But this this is is the first thing that you can really call a a convention, convention, right? You know, and and just right off the bat, he's just too commercial. Too, I I can't take this. This is the path you're going down. And you know, immediately the question becomes: Well, what do you want out of it? What What are you expecting to get out of this? It's one thing to get your friends together and uh, go sit at a restaurant or somebody's home and talk about how much you love Star Trek, but once you go to the trouble of having a place, so you have to have a venue mm-hmm, to have this mm-hmm, event, mm-hmm. and guests, and uh, uh, hopefully multiple attendees, you know, you know I, yeah, when a, you have a program a, book, a schedule sheet, right. something, you know. When you have a Gene Roddenberry and an Isaac Asimov coming in, well, look, even if back in these halcyon days <laughs> of Star Trek fandom, even if they weren't getting paid or weren't getting paid much, you still have to get them there. Um, I don't see any way that you can do an event like that without without having some commercial aspect to it. I, I you mean, yeah, he's he's clearly after a lot less hokum here. Is what yeah, he's but but I, again, in 1972, how much hokum was there, and and would he just be appalled and shocked at? The convention industry as it is today, I'm sure that he would. I, I'm, you know, and again, he says he's gone to the first TrekCon in January, mm-hmm. and he's getting Al Schuster's upcoming convention, DTFF. Not sure what that is. Yeah. Fan, fan festival, fan uh, film yeah. festival. Yeah. But um, something, something. But he's talking about this curve he sees coming in. So, you know, maybe he sees probably, well, you know, well, he's very prescient. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) This is going to take off. Because, I mean, you know, just as a matter of context, that original New York con, they were planning on 500 people. Yeah. 3,000 showed up. That's what since it was in New York, it was very easy for reporters to be around, the press right. to be there. The the infamous first uh, appearance of the word Trekkie in mass media was in the TV Guide article that yeah. came about this. That set a lot got the rest of the country talking about it, and and wags in you know media circles. So it was really a groundbreaking moment. Got a lot of attention. The second convention. 6,000 people, so they've doubled. Yeah. The 74 was 15,000. They turned wow. away 6,000 people. It's the one that famously mobbed. They had the panel table with every, you know, Gene and actors at the front, and the somebody surged forward, and the crowd at the mm-hmm. front actually surged, like, onto the platform stage, and they mm-hmm. were worried and called fire marshals. Yeah, and, yeah. And then after that's when they had the split. and But, you know, the Megacon was on, and some people worried yeah. they were going to burn themselves out. But this is the early, early days of Star Trek. Yeah. The first passion wave, right? Well, and look, here's the thing. I don't want to come across like I think he's entirely wrong. I don't think he is. And I think all of these levels of fandom and levels of engagement with fandom can coexist. Like I said, you, you've got, even today, as we record this, you have the mega conventions with uh, a huge lineup, lineup of stars. You have uh, loads and loads of vendors. I mean, right. Comic-Con is its is own it, Whether it's thing. generic or it's yeah, franchise-specific. Specific. Right, yeah. right. So you have those on a huge scale, but then you also have kind of what we call the smaller mom-and-pop conventions, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's a very different level. The Regional focus, cons, yeah. local cons, right. And the focus is 
very different. The focus is on, uh, you know, room parties and and chats and the social aspect of it. And that's great. It still costs money to get there. It still costs right. money to have the uh, the space. And um, a, an organizer would be nuts to turn away the opportunity to make it profitable, to make it right. viable. Now, you could argue about the scale of that as much as you <laughs> want, but um, I, I don't think it's a dirty word to say that a convention organizer would make a profit. That's how you get more conventions. Yeah. And I think, in the, as with anything, I think in the early days, there was a big thing. Well, we can have more guests, and we can have, you know, there's a yeah, competition yeah, like yeah, any, yeah. you know, you see that any fan endeavor, any a lot of endeavors. Yeah. And that was maybe part of the early burnout, but uh, yeah. but yeah, you've got to You've got to cover costs. Now, as with conventions, as fan conventions, as with any aspect, people go into the nonprofit you know, model, mm-hmm. too. But even then, nonprofit does not mean uh, make no money because you've got to cover costs. And right. if it really right. becomes a going thing, you want to reward people. You know, we have a lot of nonprofit models that have to pay employees and, and expenses and supplies and rent yeah. and whatever they're doing, equipment. Yeah. Um, and even though convention isn't an ongoing affair, well, most of them aren't. Some of them, <laughs> right. I think, are ongoing right. affairs now. So, you know, like but it's a really difficult business. Like, uh, the convention business is something that I would never want to be a part of. I would never <laughs> want to try to throw my hat in the ring to create one. It, it is extraordinarily difficult, and you're you're spending money to create an event based on the prospect, just the idea that hopefully people will show up and you'll sell enough tickets that then you get to stay open and have another one. And yeah. And you know, you know, hats off to fans who work in this and, and professional fans Mm -hmm, turn mm -hmm. pros who do it commercially and find the formula somewhere between earning their cred and treating people, you know, customer service and attracting a guest lineup that brings people in, um, Offering all the little fanish touches, mm-hmm. right, and just moments for people to to enjoy those once in a kind moments that you even in the inner, the era of internet and and home computing and mm-hmm. and instant access to now we got content mm-hmm. you can watch you, mm-hmm. you don't have to go to the cons to see those films out of first circulation right. or episodes we can do so much at home what do you do now in this age to to attract an audience and people have found. You know they can keep in contact online, but you've got to go have the live moment. You you actually can see people live, whether it's your friend, fans, or the new people you've met, or yes, celebrities or creatives. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you know that that niche. But I, so yeah, we're back in the seventy two mindset here, and he's worried. You know, he says Mister Schuster has admitted he wants to uh, make a profit from organizing. Fine. If you yeah. can make a little money in times like these, because, boy, the depression of 72 is... <laughs> okay, but, but here's the thing, you know, to, you know, to Mr. Whiteman's uh, uh, question, how how much, like, how much yeah, is it how an much acceptable is much? level yeah, right, for right. him? Uh, because that, that's a pretty subjective judgment call. Well, I love how he says possibly affect its popularity among the more literate followers. Uh, right. Do we well, have a little uh, lit <laughs> snobbery creeping in there? Yeah, uh, I know. No. Yeah, it is a little bit of snobbery. And, and again, it's, yeah, you just, there's no way to really come to the perfect answer on that. Because even if Mr. Schuster's profit margin is something that is acceptable by Mr. Whiteman's uh, assessment, mm-hmm. well, it may not be to somebody else. Like Mr. So, Schuster's creditors. Well, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, then, of course, we've got Gene's reply. Which here. I love. Which, yeah. of course, he's diplomatic as always. Yeah. We'll take any any fan's comments. Of course, he's going to, you know, especially in 72, this is before the deal for the animated series of has course. been done. Of course, of course, yeah. Um, yeah. 
You know. But he basically says, he says, like, uh, yeah, people do things to make money. And uh, to have a convention that charges money and makes a profit, that's how they work. And he can speak <laughs> yeah. from, you know, I, at least the Worldcon in 66 in Cleveland, where he first took the cage and mm-hmm. where No Man the Pilots, very famously, in some of the costumes. He'd been familiar with fan conventions, at least the sci-fi mold since then. And yeah, he, yeah. he can speak from firsthand. Of course, he's got, Dor- uh, he's got you know, his circle of fan- Dorothy and his circle of fan friends. Yeah. But he's got experience and can tell the guy, look, um, you got to pay for that stuff somehow. I did just compare, compare it to any event, like a World's Fair or anything. Right. It's the same idea. You're prospecting that, okay, if we build it, they will come. But in order to build it, we've got to spend money. We've got to put people in booths. We've got to have attractions. We've got to have all this stuff to make people travel, whether it's a few miles or around the world. To get to this event. And, you know, the ultimate advice to anyone who's even lightly complaining about anything. Yeah. If you don't like the dealer tables or the art auction, don't, don't, don't go. Don't go there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, exactly. No, it's, it's, you know, it's, again, it's part of the, um, our hindsight of knowing everything that was to come from this, all the yeah, bigger yeah, and bigger yeah. fan conventions, all the bigger, bigger you know, commercial yeah. conventions, the, com- the companies that have come and gone. It's a tricky business over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of companies in the 80s and mm-hmm. 90s and then a kind of a fallow time. You know, uh, our friends, at, you know, Adam and Garrett creation have managed to hang in there all these years. I don't know mm-hmm. who else can compare to that. But. Well, and it is, you know, look, there is a downside to all of this. You know, the the sort of uh, arms race of mm-hmm. like conventions outdoing one another, and then you've got to outdo yourself, and the bigger and bigger scale that right. gets, yes, it's always Outdoing going to yourself cost. can be as yeah, big yeah. a trap. It's as... always going to cost more money. So there is an inherent problem with that, um, but there are those conventions that exist where they are just sort of the, the mom-and-pop-driven, yeah. smaller scale and not relying on, well, I don't have to spend Shatner money to get a Shatner <laughs> there and then make that back. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't I, I don't want to be a hindsight snob, but there's mm-hmm. there's something charming about reading his letter in 72, worrying about the commercialism. But, you know, things go in cycles, things, pendulum swings. There were people when the internet, when social media came wondering about the future of conventions. Yeah. And, and yeah. as Star Trek as a franchise itself has ebbed and flowed, and now we're flowing back. But yeah. there was a time in the aughts when Enterprise was down and canceled and we were in the fallow years and people were wondering about the future of Trek conventions, if not, you know, about that time the superhero binge came in along with Twilight and the Comic-Cons took off. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it depends. A lot of good fans are out there doing nonprofits, doing fans, and people are still... God bless them. They're still jumping in the arena to start conventions now. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you and I both speak from experience with failed conventions. Yes. Uh, having been at those. And uh, it's not a pretty picture. Uh, so you, you, you want somebody behind it who can at least make sure you get beyond the first 10 minutes of the convention. Right. Uh, before having to close it down. <laughs> the first yeah. six hours. Yeah. Looking at you, FedCon, yeah. USA. Yeah. Yeah. USA, I say. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that was Friends at FedCon in Germany are doing quite well, thank you. Right, but, uh, right. 
No, it's a, it's a story. You know, it's a colorful history. Somebody should do a documentary about one. Oh, hey, that would be a great idea. I, yeah, with go, a clever me, title. A clever title yeah. that he didn't invent because it came from the weekend of the event. Yeah. Yes. Well, hey, Cole, I, I feel for you. Um, I, I understand where you're coming from, but uh, I think Gene pretty much nails it, just saying, look, there's there's a reality to what's going on yeah, here. Yeah. And, yeah. Cole, you know, if you're still out there somewhere, I'd love to talk to you now. Yeah. And come to a convention. At the, at come, the, uh, come to Vegas. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Or we'll go down the street to your local mom and pop convention and see what's what's there. Anyway, John, thanks for this. This this, this letter just popped out at me from the files, and I just I love to, it. I wanted to put a little yeah. context and reflection to it, as always. The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Additional production by Ken Ray. All our documents are available at facebook.com slash the Trek Files. For more great podcasts, check out podcast.roddenberry.com. And for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47. That's me at larrynimacek.com. Trek well, everybody. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.